Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. <laughs> you know, I, that's another thing that's been overdone. Um, but I, I think it's helpful to get uh, a bit of a grid of like, okay, what did, what does the Bible say will happen next? Um, what will happen before is coming, during, right after? And I think the Bible has stuff to say about that. I don't think it's silent. And so I think we can paint a little bit of a chronology. So what I'll do is I'll start with Matthew 24, and then I will skip to the end of Revelation. That's, that's how this is going to look, okay? So <clears throat> Matthew 20, and this will help me if <clears throat> somebody could read the verses for me. It'll give my voice a break. Would it be good for, if somebody reads the scripture, should they come to this microphone so it's recorded? Okay, yeah. Um, could I have like two reader volunteers that wouldn't mind? Yeah, Tim, maybe like one other person who wouldn't mind coming up here and reading a, okay, cool. What's your name? <laughs> Sorry, I got you at the donut. <laughs> Dan, great. Okay, Tim and Dan. Cool. Um, can, can you, can you, Tim, read uh, Matthew 24? Verses 3 through 14. Uh, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, yeah, tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? (laughs) So let me take, and then stay up here, stay up here. I'll have you read some more. Um, So what we are about to get are Jesus's signs. Yes, did they have a, An initial fulfillment in 70 AD? Absolutely. And it's my opinion that the Luke version highlights that even more. But I believe the Matthew version is the go-to for for an end-time framework because I believe that Matthew focuses more on the end-time fulfillment. And so it actually becomes a really helpful chronology, the closest thing we have. Uh, And Jesus, you'll notice he uses the word then. Okay, that's a time indicator word. He says, this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. Okay, so he's not skipping around. He is going in a straight line. Really helpful. The book of Revelation does not do that. The book of Revelation skips around, and it can be really frustrating. But here is a time, Jesus and Paul both do this, where they actually give us a little bit of a a chronology. And so Tim's going to read Jesus' answer to the question, and I want you to think end of the age, however long the final generation is. <clears throat> That's another misstep that we've made in church history is we've attempted to guess when the last generation started and how long the last generation, I mean, that was the whole 1988 debacle, okay? Israel became a nation in 1948. A generation is clearly 40 years. Boop, 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 1988, okay? It's, not, it's just not that simple. Jesus did say no one knows the day or the hour, 
We don't know that the last generation started in 1948, first of all. And also, there are actually some generations in the Bible that are 100 years. And so Jesus has left it <clears throat> ambiguous enough where we cannot set a date. Again, just, I mean, you guys know that, but uh, that's just like good sense for this. Okay, but think end of the age as Tim's reading um, verses 4 through 14. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be uh, you will be hated by all nations because hated. Sorry, <laughs> you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At the time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of, how, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Great. And then I'll have uh, uh, Dan, right? Uh, after, I'll explain a, few, a little bit, and they'll have you come up and read the next portion. So for, for this part, <clears throat> Jesus gives us sign indicators of the end of the age, answering his disciples' question. And some of them are not super helpful, if I could say that respectfully to Jesus, <laughs> because, you know, like uh, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines— uh, people will rightly say, well, that's happened all throughout church history. Um, it, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to take those alone and say, well, we, we must be at the end of the end, you know? Um, but, but once we get to verse nine through verse 14, it actually does get more specific and, uh, and they're unfulfilled. And so we can say, that there are specific predictions in verses 9 through 14 that are yet future, and we will see those things before the return of Jesus. And, um, and that's huge. I mean, that's huge. You know, we, uh, we have an innate curiosity about the future, and to a, a small extent, Jesus answers it and says, you can expect this. Uh, so I'll point out just a couple things. He says that in verse 9, you will be hated by all nations because of me. Okay, uh, the word nations means people group. It's the Greek word ethne. Uh, there is a time taking Jesus at face value, which we should. Remember, he was on the Mount of Olives just talking to a few dudes. This is not apocalyptic literature, you know? They're just bros talking. Jesus is not trying to trick them right now. He's not trying to use like symbols or allegory. Um, he's just talking. And he's saying, you will be hated by all nations. All, every, every people group will hate you, all right? Um, you know, every people group during Jesus' day, there's, they didn't even know about Jesus. Um, but we can say that a time of complete global persecution of Christianity is coming. Um, that includes America. That includes Canada. That includes, I don't know, fill in, fill in your, uh, your nation that's 
at peace, Western world, everything's fine and dandy right now. Um, there will be, uh, uh, you know, sanctioned persecution of Christians. All right. And, and, you know, some would say that we're, we're getting there in America. You can see signs of it, but it's still yet future. This is something uh, concrete that we have not seen yet. Uh, you go, man, that's pretty negative. Gets a little more negative before it gets positive. Okay. The next one is that at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And it talks about false prophets and an increase of wickedness. Okay, again, this is just, this is why the post-millennial approach to me is a little bit untenable, where numerous scriptures say, like, there is, a darkness is going to get darker. Like, things are going to hit the fan. This is going to get crazy. Um, about many people fa- uh, uh, falling away from the faith, Paul, in one of his letters, uses this as one of the two biggest sign indicators before the return of Jesus. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says two things must happen before Jesus returns and gathers his saints. Okay? The rapture slash second coming, two things must happen before. And, and, and that blows the secret rapture idea out of the water because he basically says this, these tribulation events have to happen before the saints are gathered. And the two things are a great falling away from the faith is number one. That's ex- it matches exactly. Well, people would say that he's just riffing on Jesus, actually. He's just borrowing what Jesus already taught. Um, and so we can say that a falling away from the faith is yet future. And some people like John Eldridge, you know, a pretty mainstream Christian author, is saying that that's happening right now. I mean, that's not the hat I'm wearing today, the doomsday prophet that's telling you we're in the last generation. You know, I'm not, I'm not making any of those claims tonight, but I'm just saying, uh, you know, pretty responsible, well-known Christian leaders are saying that, that we're seeing uh, the beginning of a great falling away in the Western world. And I would just add, we are set up for it because of, because of the, <clears throat> the version of Christianity that we have a lot of times in the West. Um, I mean, think of the amount of <clears throat> Christian leaders, megachurch pastors that have fallen in the, in the last decade, if you pay attention to that kind of stuff. It's tragic. Um, it, it occurs monthly, basically, and in its wake are just thousands and thousands of Christians that are disillusioned and that are literally walking away from the faith. Um, <clears throat> so it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay with the, <clears throat> the negative. <clears throat> he goes on to say in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will will come. Again, such a clear sign indicator. This will happen, and then this will happen. Okay? What's the, in Jesus' little time indicator sentence there, what must happen first right before the end? Somebody tell me. Just classroom feedback to me. Right, we talked about that, but then in verse 14, what has to happen? Right. Okay. That's another thing yet future that has not happened yet. If you, you know, there are lots of mission organizations on the internet. Uh, The Joshua Project is a great one that will talk about unreached people groups on the earth today. Uh, Again, remember nations means people groups in in the Greek. There are thousands of people groups on the earth who have never heard the name of Jesus. Isn't that wild? We're in the 21st century. Um, uh, the 1040 window, you know, it's that, that 
region of the earth, top of Africa, middle of Middle East, bottom of Asia. That's where all of the unreached people groups are. Um, I just read a statistic a few days ago that said that 99 point something, whatever it was, percent of missionaries are giving their time and money and energy to places that have already been reached and where there's already an established church. It's like 0.05% of missionaries are dedicating their time and resources to the unreached people groups. And the task remains unfinished. What Jesus said has to happen before the end remains unfinished. And most of the Christians on the earth are not dedicating their time to it. I I usually talk to 20-year-olds. And so I, I always say at this point, I say, if you're looking for something to give your life to, think of unreached people groups. If, if nothing else, prayer, intercession. I mean, not everyone's going to be called to, I mean, because there's cost. That's why no one's doing it, because it might cost your life. Um, in fact, most of the time when the new people group, it, it, it's tried to, you know, somebody tries to break in, uh, martyrdom happens. They're, they're not open to a new religion. And then usually revival happens. First martyrdom, then revival is usually the way. So these are time indicators that Jesus gives. Um, Now we're going to go on with the signs, okay? So we're we're already into future territory, but there's more. There's more that must happen before the second coming that Jesus is going to tell us. Uh, Dan, could you come up and read? Thank you. Verses 15 through, let's just go to uh, 28. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Let's just read uh, the second coming, too. It's just the next three verses, 29-31. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Okay, beautiful. 
Thanks, man. So, so what we read there, starting with verse 15, is a description of what we would call the Great Tribulation. Okay, the, when he starts off with this weird phrase, you know, add it to the 30 weird phrases you've heard tonight, um, the abomination of desolation. Okay, and I can uh, talk about that more if you guys want, uh, you know, kind of question and answer, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize that and say that's basically a reference to the Antichrist figure. This, this is Jesus referencing what Paul calls the man of sin and what the book of Revelation calls the beast. It's, it's the abomination of desolation, uh, something that the Antichrist will do that will kick off those final years of great tribulation. And most premillennialists would see that as a literal three and a half year period called the great tribulation. Okay. Uh, again, for time's sake, I'll leave it there. Great tribulation leads into verse, again, verse 29. He gives another timing indicator immediately after, immediately after this will happen. These great cosmic disturbances. Uh, I like the way David Pawson says it. Uh, he says, all the lights will go off. It's like the beginning of a, a play, you know, like a Broadway play, like everything goes dark and then psh, the curtain opens and the lights go on, you know, all the focus. And that's, that's how the end of this age occurs. All the lights literally go out and then there's a bright shining light in the sky and it's Jesus himself coming back for his victorious church. And, and that's how, um, again, just to kind of throw this in there, he says in verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. That, that is a description of the rapture. The rapture and the second coming are, are, are the same event. That's the fallacy of the pre-trib left behind view is that it separates them into two different views. And even their leading scholars will say, well, we don't exactly have a verse that says they're supposed to be separate, but, you know, we just imply it from blah, blah, blah. But, but this passage, he says immediately after those days, the Great Tribulation, this will happen, including the, the rapture. Um, okay, now, what happens next? All right, so we're, we're going, we've, we've gone through this, this last generation. Uh, the, the darkness got dark. We saw a great, oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the, the really debated question. Um, I think the easiest answer is that he was talking about the generation that he was just talking about. <laughs> so he just, he just spent 31 verses talking about a generation of people. And then he says in verse 34, I tell you that this generation will not pass away. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I say things like the end time generation. And that's why, again, people have taken that to unhealthy extremes and tried to predict the end. But I think they started off with a true concept, which is there is an end time generation. That's what that's how I view it. Yeah. A preterist, of course, would would point to this verse and they would say, see this generation. It's talking about everything happening in 70 A.D. Um, I would go so far as to, you know, throw him a bone and say, perhaps 
it's a it's even a dual fulfillment where where the words can be stretched to the point where Jesus is saying this generation listening will experience this a little bit in 70 AD but this generation the end time generation will experience all of these things to the end uh, but I think primarily it's the end time generation I think that's a really uh, common sense, easy way to read that verse that makes sense of everything. Um, so then he'll, and we're not going to talk about this, but the rest of the chapter is, is Jesus giving warnings about this generation, uh, encouragements, practical applications. He's going to go on to give about four parables that will outline how we should respond to all this information. And so if you're looking for something practical, you know, after tonight, just read on. Read on Matthew 24, read on Matthew 25. Jesus is going to talk about how we can be prepared for, for his coming. But what I want to do is, okay, what happens next after Jesus appears in the sky and gathers us to be with him? Now, for those of you who might think, well, that's a weird concept that Jesus would gather us up into the sky and then march right back down to earth again, uh, it actually matches a Greek word that's used for the arrival of Jesus, parousia. You know, maybe some of you guys have heard that. It's a real common phrase. The parousia of Jesus is his arrival. And the way the, the word parousia was used in first century Greek is when a, a king or a royal dignitary would visit a city he would visit, he would stop outside of the boundary of the city and he would wait until his special figures, you know, his ambassadors, his, his friends from the city would go outside of the city to meet him and they would accompany him inside the city in a royal procession. And, and so that gives a beautiful picture of what Jesus himself will do when he comes back is he will stop on the outskirts of the city of the earth and he will gather all of the saints up to be with him. And 1 Thessalonians 4 gives a more detailed description of that gathering. We will receive our resurrected bodies at that time that, that we will have forever, that we'll never get sick again, that we'll have supernatural capabilities that apparently are able to walk through walls and fly and still eat, you know, according to what Jesus did in his resurrected body. Um, and once we gather with him and receive our bodies in the air, we will, just like the kings of old did, we will come back to the earth in a royal procession. And this is why Matthew and other verses say, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Because those who were not gathered up to him will look up and see this earth-shaking event that was very much different than the first coming, right? First coming was incognito, kind of the secret infiltration of God into the earth. This is the point of the second coming is to be opposite of the first coming. It's him coming back in a way uh, publicly where everyone can see where he is uh, vindicated before the entire earth. How did Jesus leave the public eye? He left uh, broken and humiliated on a cross. When he comes back in the second coming, that's the first time that the public world will see him again and he will be vindicated in glory. Um, and so we will, we will come back down to the earth and I want you to uh, skip to Revelation 19 now. I'm, I'm skipping a few details that are a part of the storyline, but I want to get to uh, what we can say happens next. So Revelation 19, <clears throat> I'll, I'll talk us through it rather than reading it. 
This is the famous picture that, uh, where Jesus is riding on his white horse, okay? He's riding on his white horse with the, with the saints uh, and angels behind him at this point. This is the royal procession that, that is going to lead all the way to Jerusalem. Zechariah says that he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives at, at some point in this procession, but it's however, whatever the route is, Okay, once you get into the details of end time scripture, it's like, what's the route he's going to take? And we, you know, we try to find it and it's, it's really fun. I don't know, but I know that he's going to start in the sky and he's going to end up in Jerusalem. That, that's what we can say for sure. Uh, but it's going to be a royal procession and, and part of the procession is the slaying of his enemies. All right. This is one of those aspects of the end time scriptures that can get really uncomfortable. Okay. Um, and some people have gone so far as to, when it says that his, his garments are soaked in blood, they will say, you know, especially the idealist approach, they'll say, yeah, it's soaked in his own blood. It's a picture of a, the cross, except that's actually the exact opposite of the context. The context is his, him coming back in judgment to slay his enemies at the end of the age. The, and this is not the only verse that talks about it. We, we really can't get around it. Jesus is coming back to kill people. Okay? This is real. All right, this is part of his judgment. He's coming back to make war as a king, and the, the, the period of amnesty is over, okay? And he slays his enemies in the royal procession on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, once he gets to Jerusalem, I'm getting to the end of uh, Revelation 19 now, there is a final battle between the beast, man of sin, slash antichrist character, and all these wicked kings that have joined him. And for some reason, they are deluded to think that they can conquer the man on the white horse. And so there's this, this final epic battle where there's, it's in Jerusalem, I believe. Another side note, I don't believe this happens. You know, the battle of Armageddon you hear a lot of times. Uh, Revelation 16 only says that they gather in Armageddon. It does not say that the battle happens there. I believe that's the gathering point for the, the beast and his armies. I believe the battle itself happens in Jerusalem because Joel 3 says that's where it happens. So you've got Jesus, all of his saints, all of his angels on one side, you know, all of these supernatural characters and their resurrected bodies and, and all the angels of heaven. And then on the other side, you have the beast and his uh, kings and all the people who took the mark of the beast. And the battle ends up being not much of a battle. It says that a sword goes out from Jesus' mouth and that all the armies of the beasts are slain in a moment. That's the end. It's almost anticlimactic. And then it says that the beast and the false prophet are thrown directly into the lake of fire. Okay? Now, answering Lauren's question, what happens after that? Revelation 20. Okay? Um... And I'm going to read Revelation 20 right now. This is after the last battle. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. I'm, I'm reading the NIV as well. Having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon. And you go, wait a second. Who's the dragon? It's so symbolic and confusing. Just keep reading. It says, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan? Okay, it, it really clears it up. Um, it gives him every name that he's ever been given in the Bible. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm saying that because this happens a lot in the book of Revelation where it's like, 
uh, it's, it's so confused. It's like, it actually explains it a lot of times. It's really not as confusing as we say it is. Okay. Uh, or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. That's a weird plot twist, okay? But, but, to, answer, but to answer Lauren's question, the devil is locked up for the 1,000 years. So he's put into the abyss. Um, the scriptures say that hell was originally made for the devil and his angels. So the abyss that was set apart for him, he's locked up. So Jesus is free to rule and reign with us, his saints, in our resurrected bodies for a thousand years with no spiritual warfare, with no demonic deception, uh, with the, 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 the curse that was put on the earth in Genesis 3 is now free to be uh, lifted off and for the entire earth to be restored and set free from the consequences of the fall. And what's, um, what's a little bit surprising is that Jesus, again, in the premillennial view, which I, I believe is right, is that Jesus decides to take a thousand years to do it. He could have done it instantly, right? It could have been last battle, um, eternal age, boom. But there's this a thousand year interim period where he restores the kingdom to natural Jerusalem. We rule and reign. Uh, and it actually makes sense of a lot of different scriptures in the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 65 talks about a time, a future time of glory, where the one who dies at 100 will be thought an infant. It's like, that's weird because they're still dying, okay? But, but they're being thought of as an infant because people are living long again. And so... What, what we can surmise is that in the 1,000-year restoration of the earth led by Jesus, the, <clears throat> if I can say it this way, the ecological conditions of the earth become so healthy and so restored back to a Garden of Eden-like state that people start living the way they did in the first few centuries. And people start living to 600, 700, 800, you know, even to Methuselah, you know, like, you know, 969 or whatever. And so it really is, if somebody dies in 100 years, that they'll be considered uh, a baby. Now, the natural question is, wait, wait, who's going to die? Because I thought we were given our resurrected bodies. Okay, now here's another twist of the millennial view is that um, the, there are actually three groups of people at the end of the age, okay? And somebody once put it with all words that start with R, and it just, you know, caught in my brain. There are the redeemed. We are raptured up to be with Jesus and are part of him and his army. There are the, re um, the reprobate, okay? Those are the ones who took the mark of the beast, wanted nothing to do with the man on the white horse. They gave, they gave their uh, spiritual allegiance over to the beast and worshiped him, and they, they are slayed by Jesus at the end. But there's a third category, okay? We had the redeemed, we had the reprobate, but we also have the resistors. We have a third category of people, and, if, and again, if I had time, I could show you various verses that actually point to a third category of people that didn't take the mark of the beast, and, but hadn't become Christians just yet. Uh, and a lot of these people will be the Jews, there will be a lot of Jews that are in this third category of people. 
and they won't get saved until after Jesus comes back. And Jesus will show himself in such a way where after <clears throat> the royal procession happens, they go, okay, okay, now we're in. And, you, and I know that that just blows our categories out of the water because we view it like a video game. Like once Jesus appears, it's game over. Nothing matters anymore. Time's done. But it's like, it's actually way more earthy. Uh, and there, there's actually quite a bit of story left to unravel uh, from this, this master story writer. And so this third category of people get saved after Jesus's return. And they're the ones who populate the millennial earth in non-resurrected bodies, okay? And they're the ones uh, who build houses, uh, live in complete peace and harmony, and some of them will, you know, will die at 100, and everyone will go, oh, poor guy, he was just a wee little lad, you know? And then others will live for hundreds and hundreds of years in the, in the new conditions, and there will be a thousand years of just complete peace and harmony with Jesus literally reigning from Jerusalem on the earth. And there will be... Um, <clears throat> yearly processions where everyone visits Jerusalem to see the man on the throne, to listen to him teach, to have Jesus conferences. I mean, I mean, it sounds almost silly until you realize that that's really the way the Bible presents it. Um, and now at the end of this a thousand year period, that's where there's a plot twist. And that's where it says that Satan must be released one more time. And Satan, uh, you know, you can read in, in Revelation 20, I'll just uh, kind of explain it. But Satan is released into the earth one more time. And those who are still living on the earth, who, ha who, are, who are living in their natural bodies, will be given a chance to listen to the whisperings and the deception of the snake who is let back into the garden, so to speak, or to give their allegiance to Jesus, the man on the throne who's been ruling perfectly and in righteousness for a thousand years. And the shocker of all shockers is that some people will choose the snake at the end of the millennium. And you, I know the question, you go, wait a second, why would anybody on a perfect earth believe a lie of Satan and follow him? Except it's happened before. That's how the whole Bible started. The whole Bible started with people who are living in a perfect earth and yet they still, they still listen to the, the deception of Satan and were led astray. Um, and it really does put to rest the notion that if life was easier and there were less suffering and, um, you know, conditions were better, then we're really good on the inside and that everyone would just naturally love and worship God. That's a humanistic notion, not a biblical notion. What the, what, the, the, what the reason why, as I understand it, that Jesus lets Satan back into the, the millennial earth one last time is to let that last generation decide, just like every other generation has had to decide. And tragically, some are deceived. And, so, and that's how the thousand years ends, is a final, <clears throat> a final deception, final falling away, and then one last final cleansing. And that's what leads into the great judgment, the white throne of the end of chapter 20. Um, and that's where unbelievers are judged by Jesus and are, are punished and sent to the, the lake of fire. The hell is, is, hell is a, a temporary holding place. La the lake of fire is, is the eternal judgment. It's kind of like uh, 
county prison versus state prison. You know, like hell is actually just temporary until the end of the millennium. And then the lake of fire, it says that even death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Everything on the earth, it's, it's like a last final cleansing of the earth to make it a brand new heavens and earth, okay? After that, chapter 21, the storyline just keeps going. And it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the eternal age, all right? And this is where it says, uh, I'm looking at Revelation 21. It says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he dwelt with them. This is a picture of God the Father coming down to dwell on the earth. You go, oh, that's nice. No, no, no. At the beginning of the millennium, Jesus comes back and, and rules and reigns on the earth. But God the Father is still somewhat distant. The earth has not been completely restored and prepared. You could call the eternal age the coming of the Father. Okay, there's the second coming of Jesus, and then there's the coming of the Father. The first time that the Father was free to be on the earth the way he was in the Garden of Eden, just walking with Adam and Eve. So this is, verse 3 is actually pretty epic, and that's why there's this huge announcement. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. See, it's, it's here in the eternal age that death is done for forever and ever. Remember, in, in, the, in the millennial earth, there is still death in, 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 in its form. But this is where death or mourning, crying, pain, the old order of things has been passed away. And then verse 5, he says, I'm making everything new. And we really don't have a lot of information on the eternal age. Um, we can only guess that it's going to be, you know, it's more than, uh, it's more than we can, what's that verse that we always talk about, you know, more than we can dream or desire or, uh, um, it's, it's beyond the realm of comprehension. What's going to happen once God, the father comes back to dwell on the earth in a manifest way. So that's how I see it. That's how I see the, the storyline. Sorry, I went a little bit over. Um, did I answer some of your questions about the millennium from the, the pre-millennial viewpoint? Um, I would just say, too, for the all-millennialists and post-millennialists, they have to deal with the fact that in Revelation 20, it says that Satan himself is put in a prison and he cannot deceive the nations anymore. Remember, the all-millennial and post-millennial viewpoint is that we right now are in the millennium. And so they somehow have to reconcile the idea that Satan is not deceiving anyone right now, which, which to me is unthinkable. To me, that is the death nail to those two viewpoints. Even though there's some appealing aspects to them, I think it's the death nail where that's the exact opposite of what the rest of the New Testament says, where we are living in an age of great deception and spiritual warfare. Okay. Any, any last? Yeah. <clears throat> Sound like you kind of passed over this in, in Revelation uh, but there's a little parenthetical remark. The rest of the dead do not come to life until a thousand years were ended. So that sounds like the rapture is the people meeting Jesus in the sky are the ones who are living on earth. 
that the new bodies for those who have died happen after the millennium? Yeah, so so um, you can look at it like um, it's like two two trains coming into the station. Like they talk about a first resurrection, and that's the the rapture second coming event. Everyone who's on the earth and everyone who's ever known Jesus from history, all is a part of the first resurrection. Okay? So the entire church that has, has ever existed is part of the first resurrection. Now, the, the next resurrection is, is reserved for the end of the millennium. And what it's like the next train doesn't come into the station until a thousand years later. And what that seems to be reserved for is, first of all, is a resurrection of, of the condemned. So, so the wicked will have their own resurrection. Um, and this is a, you know, it's, it's, there are a few verses that seem to allude to the fact that the, the wicked will ha- have their own resurrected body that they'll be given to then go into the lake of fire with. So that's part of the, that second resurrection. But also, and this is not said explicitly, it just seems to be implied, also, the second resurrection would be for those who got saved during the millennium. They wait until the 1,000 years are over to then receive their resurrected body. So that, that's, the way, that's the way I make sense of that, is that there's the first resurrection for everyone saved up until that point, but the next resurrection train's not coming into the station until the end of the millennium. They'd still die. They'd still die and... Yeah, uh, yeah, their souls go to the eternal city, you know, where, where, which another part of it that I didn't mention is that the, the new Jerusalem is, is merging with the earth. The whole point of Jesus coming back, it is, he's bringing heaven back to earth again. But again, it's in a thousand year process. And so it takes a thousand years for heaven to fully merge with earth again. But that's the end goal. That's what we want. We, we want, uh, uh, you know, what C.S. Lewis called the great divorce was heaven and earth splitting apart at the fall. Well, the great restoration of all things is heaven and earth coming back together again. And so the, the, the new Jerusalem begins to descend at the beginning of the thousand years, but it doesn't fully descend onto the earth and then the father himself making his home until the end of it. So it's a process.